Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kyle Beadle. Today, we are talking to Judge James E. Baker about his new book entitled The Centaur's Dilemma, National Security Law for the Coming AI Revolution. Judge Baker is a professor at the Syracuse University College of Law and the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs, where he is the director of the Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism. He previously served as the judge, the chief judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Armed Forces from 2000 to 2015 and served as a as the legal advisor and deputy legal advisor to the National Security Council from 1994 to 2000. He is the author of In Common Defense, National Security Law for Perilous Times from the Cambridge University Press in 2007, and the co-author of Regulating Covert Action from the Yale University Press in 1992. Thank you, Judge Baker, for being here. How are you doing today? Oh, well, I'm doing fine. Uh, thank you. Um... Fine is a relative term in in a during a pandemic. Um, I wish your listeners well. I hope their families are uh, safe, and I would encourage everybody to adhere to the guidance to wear masks, uh, physically distance, and wash your hands with regularity. Thank you. That is very important. So, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Uh, sure. Thank you, Kyle. I'd be happy to. Um, I don't know how far, whether you want me to go back to the log cabin in Illinois, but I, uh, I won't do that. <laughs> I think one of the things I'd like to highlight about my background is that I'm not a technologist. I'm not a, a technology specialist. I'm not a coder. Um, one of the fun things about uh, this uh, assignment, and I'll tell you how I ended up with the assignment in a few minutes, but one thing about this assignment is it was an opportunity to learn something new, and I, uh, your readers will be the ju- your listeners will be the judge of this, and the readers of my book will be the judge of this. But one of the messages I'd like to convey to your audience um, is that 
normal people can learn artificial intelligence. Uh, this is this is a complex area, but it's not an area that is beyond the reach of someone who wants to take a few minutes uh, to um, study it. And I'm living proof that that can be done. Um, here's why. Uh, I started my career as an infantry officer in the United States Marine Corps. Um, in my view, sort of acting as a citizen soldier. I grew up in the uh, Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts area and was imbued as a uh, youngster with the theory that we all should serve in some manner, not necessarily in the military. And I uh, chose the uh, Marine Corps as my form of public service. Um, after uh, serving in the Marine Corps, I then worked um, on Capitol Hill uh, of recent public interest um, for Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan. Uh, the senior senator from New York at the time and someone who had served in the administrations of John Kennedy, uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, Richard Nixon, and Gerald Ford. Um, so uh, relevant in the sense that he was bipartisan. Um, and then after, he's the one who convinced me or encouraged me or one might say compelled me uh, to go to law school. Uh, not so much to become a lawyer, but to uh, equip myself for government service uh, with knowledge of the law and a law degree and a knowledge of the Constitution, which hopefully is something I did bring uh, to the book. Um, after uh, law school, I worked at the State Department. And then, as you had indicated, um, from the State Department, I went to the National Security Council uh, where I was uh, the deputy legal advisor and legal advisor to the National Security Council, which is the senior deliberative making and decision making body of the United States government in the area of national security. Uh, why is that? Because the NSC is chaired by the president of the United States um, and it has the secretary of state, secretary of defense, national security advisor, chairman and director of national intelligence as its members, among others. And then, um, as you had indicated, I became a judge on the federal appeals court that hears military justice appeals, uh, not necessarily the place that you would go to uh, learn artificial intelligence or emerging technologies, but definitely the place you would go to learn something about the intersection of constitutional law, in this case, the Fourth Amendment, and uh, the search and seizure of evidence contained on computers. Um, which is something we spent a lot of our time dealing with. Uh, as, as my prior book would indicate, um, one of the things I think uh, judges should do and professors should do is um, try and make the law more accessible to others and try and explain to the American public in a broader sense what it is about the law and about national security that they ought to know. So that's what my 2007 book was about. In the, in the Common Defense, National Security Law for Perilous Times, which was trying to explain to the larger public, as well as some specific actors in the government, what it was about the law uh, that they should know um, in, in the context, not just of terrorism, but all the national security threats we are facing today. Oh, by the way, including the threat of a pandemic. Um, the uh, Centaur's Dilemma is an effort to do the same thing uh, for artificial intelligence, which is coming at us and coming at us hard. Uh, could I just make one point? Um, one of the things I did do when I got to Syracuse is I changed the name of our institute from the Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism 
uh, to the in uh, Syracuse University Institute for Security Policy and Law. And one of the reasons I did that was because uh, in American national security practice, uh, counterterrorism is an important function, but it is by no means the sole function, uh, nor necessarily the most important function. And I thought it was important to communicate to a larger audience uh, that in our field, we should, st should study the intersection of security and law, policy and law, but also include within that study emerging technologies, most importantly, artificial intelligence, but also quantum computing, synthetic biology, and also the traditional disciplines that go into great power rivalry and contest, uh, the tools, the military tool, the intelligence tool, and so on. Um, so that's probably more background than you inspected, but uh, there you have it. No, I think that's very important to um, demonstrate how you came to writing the book. Um, and how did you come exactly to writing? Oh, yeah. Um, Let me tell you that story because it's, it's, it's a, a, a story about careful what, um, what you say or do. Um, I was the chair of something called the ABA Standing Committee on Law and National Security, which is um, a, a group of national security lawyers, in, in mainly in Washington, but all over the world, uh, frankly. Um, and we would uh, host uh, monthly breakfasts. And, and, and lunches uh, to try and bring in speakers or to bring in speakers and, and uh, educate a wider audience about current events in national security. Um, so I had the good fortune and honor of inviting, um, I believe, one of the two or three leading thought leaders in the field of artificial intelligence and emerging technologies, a gentleman named Jason Matheny, uh, to come and give a breakfast talk. And Jason at the time uh, was the director of the of IARPA, which is the acronym for Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity, um, which is sort of DARPA uh, for the intelligence community, um, a, uh, a research and think tank type operation to look at uh, future trends, technologies, and that sort of thing, among other things. Um, so I invited him to give a talk and and he gave a very interesting talk about emerging technologies, including artificial intelligence. And um, at the end, I said, well, Jason, you're in a room full of lawyers, uh, not technologists. Um, what would you like a room full of lawyers to do for you? Uh, how can we be helpful? And he said, well, what we really need more than, more than many things or more than anything else is for the law to catch up and the ethics to catch up with the technology, which never happens. But he said, we need people to start looking at how law, law and ethics should apply to national security uses of artificial intelligence. And um, I said, well, great, I'll, I'll try and help you find someone to take a look at that. Uh, you're in the right place for that. This is a room full of lawyers. So a couple of weeks later, uh, Jason called me up and he said, I found someone to do the study I want done about national security law and artificial intelligence. And I was, I thought, great, now I don't have to find that person. And so we met to have coffee. And, and Jason is a uh, very thoughtful and also extremely uh, nice person. He's, he, he's living proof that you can be both smart and nice at the same time. Um, and he said, I found my person. 
And so we continued to have coffee. And finally, my curiosity got to me. And I said, so, so who'd you get? And he said, you. And I said, me? Uh, I can't even spell AI. Uh, and <laughs> which is almost almost the truth. And um, and uh, he said, "Oh, that's okay. You'll learn the AI part. Uh, what I'm after is your knowledge of national security and how the government works. Uh, good luck." Um, and off off I went. And so uh, my joke, which is not really a joke, is I tend to take things a bit seriously. So um, the centaur's dilemma, my book is my response to Jason. Um, so now my concern is every time I see Jason, I'm worried he's going to ask me to answer a question. I'm going to have to write a new book. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's how the book came about. Um, it occurred to me. So, so Jason was on to something, which was uh, a lot of people were, are, you know, as you know, if, you, if, you, if you've ever heard of Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, et cetera, you know that the world of technology is pushing fast and forward in the area of artificial intelligence. And you know, if you follow current events in China, uh, that artificial intelligence can be used for positive reasons and also negative reasons uh, to control populations and attract populations and so on. Um, and uh, and, and it, it happened that in the literature, there was not a lot. There are some, there's some very good stuff out there, but there were not a lot of people uh, looking at how law and ethics should apply to this revolution that's coming at us in the era of national security. Um, and uh, so, so I think I've, uh, oh, so, so, so that's what I sought to do is to write a book that a normal person could understand uh, about the law, policy, and technology in this field. I, I hope that was responsive to your question. I lost my chain of thought there for a moment. Yes, certainly. And getting getting into the book, can you kind of talk about the big picture? Can you explain what uh, the centaur's dilemma means? Uh, yeah, thank you. I'm delighted to. Um, so uh, the title uh, comes from... Um, the Department of Defense, which in many ways has been, uh, pardon the expression, the spearhead of the U.S. government's efforts in the area of artificial intelligence. Um, but I might note here that uh, the what's driving the field is industry and to a certain extent academia, and then only in the third instance, the government. But within the, within the United States government, I'd say uh, no agency is pushing as hard on the artificial intelligence door uh, than DOD. And DOD refers to something called the Centaur uh, model, which is a, uh, a use of artificial intelligence that uh, combines um, machines with humans. They call it uh, machine team, hu uh, machine uh, human teaming. Um, and so um, it occurred to me that many, uh, depending on what day of the week it is, I might say most or all, but many of the issues in law and ethics that arise with artificial intelligence in the national security space really come at us at that intersection where hu humans and machines come together to create the centaur, uh, part man, part machine. And so the centaur's dilemma uh, the essential dilemma that the centaur has is in, 
in an, in an area of technology that is both instantaneous or potentially instantaneous, um, and in some instances is hard to understand or in some cases cannot be explained uh, because of, of how it operates, um, how do you human machine team, how do you maximize the benefit of this technology which allows us to do enormous things and do them at machine speed without losing uh, human control or necessary human control. Um, and, and that's the Centaur's dilemma. How do you maximize the benefit of, of the technological capability uh, while minimizing the risks of losing um, human control or the capacity to, for humans to influence the outcome? That's the dilemma. Uh, the um, last chapter of the book is called The Centaur's Choice, because having framed the dilemma and then in the book going through the technology and, and coming through various, various aspects of the dilemma and then showing how law and ethics might regulate the dilemma, the last chapter of the book is called The Centaur's Choice, because sometimes we operate as if we're passive bystanders. We bystanders. We, we, we act as if technology will do what it does. And we lose sight of the fact that technology does what we wish it to do. Uh, we, we may have an artificial intelligence application that operates autonomously, or in some cases automatically, but there's a human who wrote the code, there's a human who built the software, and there's a human who trained the machine uh, to do the tasks that the human decided the machine should do. Uh, so you, humans are very much involved. Um, so we should not act as if we are passive, um, pa passive passengers on this technological journey, nor should we act as if it's up to Google to make U.S. national security policy any more than it's entirely up to the Department of Defense to do so. I want the American constitutional process and constitutive process to make those decisions, not a singular agency or a singular company. Um, nor do I want those decisions to be made through litigation, which is a terrible way to make public policy. So the center's choice is uh, to stand up and decide purposefully where and how we should apply law and where and how we should apply ethics and to consider in advance uh, where, if at all, we should have black letter rules um, or prohibitions or limitations on how we use artificial intelligence uh, going forward, especially in the national security space, which is my area. Um, I think this is probably a good place to uh, pause for a moment and make sure we're all talking about the same thing. Uh, one reason artificial intelligence is um, hard to regulate and hard to get your hands around and understand uh, is because it is not a single piece of hardware or software. Uh, it, it's not, um, it's been equated to electricity as a concept, not, for example, nuclear weapons as a concept, which, which is a specific thing. Um, but AI, as the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence has noted in one of its report, reports, AI is not a single piece of hardware or software. It's a constellation of technologies that give a computer system the ability to solve problems and perform human tasks that would other, otherwise require human intelligence. 
So there's a couple important things about this definition, which is the definition I use in the book and, and prefer. Uh, it's a constellation of technology. So many things have go into this AI revolution uh, and the coming revolution. Um, and and th those things include uh, data. Uh, right now, AI is very dependent on data and lots of it. Uh, algorithms. Um, cloud computing, computational speed, which is enabled by cloud computing, uh, advances in, in sensor uh, technology uh, because the sensors are feeding data uh, to the algorithms. Um, and perhaps most important is the concept of machine learning and the advances that have been made in the field and area of machine learning, which bring these various technological uh, pieces together uh, in, 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 into the greater whole, which we now refer to as artificial intelligence. Um, another thing I like about the definition is it does not make the mistake, uh, you would not expect this commission to make that mistake, but it does not make the mistake of equating artificial intelligence with human intelligence. It doesn't make them equivalent. Uh, it says, uh, perform tasks and solve problems that would otherwise require human intelligence. Uh, but it's solving tasks and, and uh, solving problems and performing tasks in a different way than humans would perform them. Even when we make the machine look like a robot, um, it is doing things differently. So this means um, it may be better than humans at doing it. Uh, it may mean there may be errors when uh, machines do things driven by artificial intelligence. And those errors may be different than the errors humans might make. But they're still errors, and they still make for a less accurate outcome. Uh, and in some cases, they may make for a more accurate outcome. And it's incumbent on us as national security specialists and practitioners to know uh, what, what the risks are and what the advantages are of using this so we can use it wisely and well uh, maximize the benefits and mitigate uh, the risks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, right. And after that, after you kind of explain what artificial, intel artificial intelligence is, which I think um, your definition, which is um, really comprehensive, is something that people don't really think about. They kind of think about it in terms of artificial general intelligence. Um, but you kind of lay out a broader, more comprehensive definition. Um, after that, you kind of explore the applications of AI and military and, 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 and in intelligence currently. So could you kind of explain that for our listeners? Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, I'll give you a brief, a, brief over, yeah, a brief overview of the book. Part one um, is intended uh, not for the, not for the technologist, um, I spent a year at MIT, by the way, uh, trying to learn artificial intelligence and um, 
that's a complicated place to learn artificial intelligence because um, uh, if if you're if you're Jamie Baker and you're coming in on the ground floor, uh, all of a sudden you find that find that you're you're walking in at, at the penthouse level of knowledge. Um, but uh, that gave me the confidence to at least uh, move forward uh, in this area. Uh, the first half of the book, part one, then uh, is intended to. Um, articulate for the generalist, for the general reader, I might note, as well as the general practitioner of uh, national security, uh, what artificial intelligence is. So I go through the technology and I hope I've gone through it um, in a manner that um, a generalist can understand. Um, And then I talk about uh, the um, different applications uh, that you could use these this constellation of technologies for. Uh, one thing that's important to understand about most artificial intelligence applications is that um, artificial intelligence is all about prediction. It's, it's a predictive tool. Uh, so when you have facial recognition, for example, uh, let's say you have the FBI's uh, facial recognition application, um, the general account, general uh, accountability office GAO uh, wrote a report two years ago where they they looked at how the FBI's facial recognition algorithm had been used, and um, they concluded that, or based on the, uh, FBI statistics, they determined that since 2011, the FBI had logged more than 390,000 facial recognition searches of federal and local databases. I might note for those out there listening, uh, including uh, the the Department of Motor Vehicle databases, in other words, license pictures. And with access to 641 million face photos, uh, so 390,000 searches of 641 million face photos, GAO uh, reports the FBI uh, said its system was 86% 86% accurate at finding the right person matching the, the picture with the file. Uh, 86% of the time it was accurate. If a search was able to generate of at least uh, generate a list of 50 possible matches, 50 possible matches. So what's going on there is it's not like in the movies where you put Jason Bourne's picture in the thing and the facial recognition system spits out where he is in some train station in Berlin, a one-for-one match. Rather, it's making a prediction. The the AI system is making a prediction that uh, there is a match based, there's a possible match uh, if you take these 50 pictures or 50 pictures or more. Um, And then the human has to come along. This is the Centaur model. The human comes along and tries to figure out uh, which of those 50 pictures is actually the picture uh, that they're trying to match the picture of the bank robber on the on on the bank uh, on the bank photo uh, uh, surveillance system that kind of thing, uh, but it's a prediction. It's not saying here's your guy. It's saying take a look at these fifty or more pictures, and chances are you'll one of them might match up. Uh, same thing. Let's take another example where AI is prediction. Uh, when you use a biometric. Uh, to uh, turn your computer on or open up your iPhone, uh, your facial recognition, right? You look into the computer or you look into your iPhone and says, yep, uh, that, that's Baker. Uh, we'll let you open up the, the system. Um, 
what what's really going on there is the computer has saved a picture of your picture from last time and it's now taking a look at the person looking at the computer and it's making a prediction based on point comparisons that it's the same pic it's the same person now who's trying to get back into the computer um it's not saying oh that's baker let him in it's saying that sure looks like baker the picture matches up uh we're making a prediction that this is a uh, is the right person, is the same person. Um, uh, another way to look, well, perhaps I've made the point then, it's all about prediction, um, and it's all, all about the quality of data that goes into informing that prediction. So uh, let me continue with a, a quick walk through the book then in the beginning. Um, so so uh, the, the First chapter then is what is artificial. It tells you what is artificial intelligence. The second chapter talks about some of the national security applications. Um, so now you can think about what are some of those applications. People like to debate uh, so-called killer robots and think of the sexy things or the dangerous things, weapons and so on. Um, but it turns out many uh, of the national security applications and the ones that are here first and upon us uh, are, are things like uh, uh, predictive maintenance, using artificial intelligence tools to figure out better when and how to maintain military equipment. Uh, by measuring, for example, the vibrations in a jet uh, with sensors, which then calculate um, when you need to maintain or change out parts on, on, on the platform. Um, medical uh, medical uh, diagnosis, right? AI is very good. AI is very good at detecting patterns, um, data mining, and detecting anomalies and patterns, depending on what type of modeling you're using. So anything that involves pattern recognition and anything involves huge, huge stores of data, uh, where might one find that? Uh, perhaps the internet has large stores of data. Uh, anywhere where you have a lot of data that a human couldn't possibly go through or possibly make connections between artificial intelligence applications are better than humans at going through that data and trying to find meaningful connections in that data, depending on how you've programmed uh, the algorithm and the system to look at that data. And so now think through all the ways you might apply that um, for medical reasons. Uh, for personnel reasons, um, for intelligence reasons, uh, trying to find patterns uh, and, and analyze pictures. Um, so uh, the chapter on applications goes through various aspects of this. Um, and then the next chapter uh, talks about, okay, that's great. You describe the applications. Now tell us what the implications are. And, and this is a chapter about risk. And it's a, there's a number of different risks. I go through six uh, specific categories of risk. Um, but the, um, uh, the, such, those risks include, for example, um, the, the, uh, the risk of uh, and the challenge of human-machine interface. And here there are a number of examples of human-machine interface where uh, there are scenarios where the... Uh, the technology works as intended, but the human doesn't understand the results of the technology. And one of the examples that's used here is the Vincennes incident from 1986. 
Uh, and I will leave it to you to figure either look that up on the internet or perhaps read the section in the book on that to understand what we're talking about here. But uh, the, the technology is either too confusing for the human to understand in the moment, or there are pressures on the human that might come from combat or might come from uh, other reasons. Um, and so the, uh, the human doesn't understand what the technology is trying to say to you. Uh, there's the issue of fumbled interface, right, where the technology passes is, is, is working perhaps, but uh, in the pass off to the human, uh, there is a, a malfunction, either human malfunction or technical malfunction. And here one can think about the 737 MAX and the new, the, the, uh, the MCAS system, the, uh, known, the Maneuvering Characteristic Augmentation System, uh, known as MCAS, which, which had, uh, Boeing had put into the aircraft um, in their effort to try and keep pace with Airbus. Um, and then uh, there's a category of interface, which is just where the technology is, technology is inaccurate. And here uh, I tell the story, which um, may, uh, some people may be, um, uh, may be aware of, which is the incident involving uh, the uh, Russian or Soviet lieutenant colonel at the time, uh, 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 who um, was on a rocket, uh, L- Lieutenant Colonel Petrov was part of the rocket command, and he received a early warning that the United States, the United States in 1983 was launching a first strike of nuclear weapons, a, a very famous incident to those people who track this sort of thing. And Petrov uh, who was, of course, trained to immediately report up the chain of command that there was a uh, missile launch on the American side, uh, didn't think the pattern uh, reflected what he thought a nuclear first strike would look like, and he sat on it. He sat on it. And the title of this chapter is called Sitting on a Hot Frying Pan, National Security Implications of AI. And sitting on a hot frying pan is, is the phrase that Lieutenant Colonel Petrov used to describe how he felt at the time, because he knew he was eating up valuable response time by not reporting up the chain of command. But there was something about it. His human intuition uh, told him that there's something wrong. And indeed, it turned out to be a malfunction in the Soviet early warning system, which was signaling a U.S. missile attack uh, when, in fact, there was none. Um, So those people who worry about technology and whether technology will work as intended often cite the Petrov incident as as an exhibit. And those of you out there who want to talk uh, and and enter this field and and understand it need to be aware of that incident so that you can relate to it and say, why is it, why should it inform how we think about AI today? And why should it not inform, right? It doesn't mean all technology will fail. It, it, but it means we ought to be prepared for that technology that might fail, or perhaps that technology that the opponent may uh, obstruct or interfere with. Uh, there's foreign relations impact and risk, right? Uh, we know uh, that AI and in, in the systems it empowers will in some manner uh, impact employment trends. And one of the questions, will, will it eliminate jobs and replace them with a new type of job, or will it simply eliminate jobs? Uh, in which case, um, uh, massive unemployment in certain places or in many places uh, could lead to instability. 
uh, AI has the ability, as we've seen in China and elsewhere, uh, to make authoritarian regimes better at what they do, uh, which is to lock down and control their populations in part. Um, there, is, uh, there is risk of a technology race, right? When you, sometimes when you get into technology races or uh, arms races, you cut corners, uh, you cut speed corners, you cut uh, safety corners. And um, there's a section in the book about some of those risks and how if we're in a technology race with other states, for example, China, um, might that lead one side or the other side uh, to cut corners? Um, and, and what are the implications of that? In any event, those are some of the risks and important risks uh, that I go through. There's also a section, and I might note, and some people may be waiting for this, and this is something that uh, not everyone is keen on uh, discussing, and that, that's the issue of existential risk. And I think for a popular audience, it's important to get ahead of that and make a comment about that. And um, Kyle, you mentioned artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, people in the field uh, generally divide uh, artificial intelligence into three sort of conceptual uh, zones. One is narrow AI, uh, which is capable AI that is capable of performing a singular task. That's where we are today. Uh, the, um, it's the, it's the uh, Google search algorithm or it's the Amazon shopping algorithm um, and, and so on. It, 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 is, it is or it is not, uh, but very good at doing one thing, which is encouraging you to buy or encouraging, making recommendations on, to you on what to buy. Um, artificial general intelligence is a conceptual time when uh, artificial intelligence can move fluidly from one task to another. Um, and while machine learning is premised on the notion that machines can learn and machines can teach themselves to learn, which is already happening, um, artificial general intelligence posits that that's a point in, in the technological future where machines not only can teach themselves, but teach themselves to do new things that the humans haven't taught them to do. Um, and perhaps ominously, uh, uh, new things that the humans might not want them to do. Now, that moves to this third area, which is superintelligence. And one of the leading books in the field of artificial intelligence from a philosophical standpoint, is a book by, by uh, Nick Bostrom, which is called Superintelligence. And uh, the period of superintelligence uh, for sci-fi people, they'll know that as, as this period of time uh, when machines are smarter uh, than humans. And um, what was scary, so a couple of years ago in 2017, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, the authoritarian leader of Russia was touring the Russian leading Russian lab in the AI area. And he asked the, the person who was giving him the tour, when will it eat me? And people mocked that and they said, that, that's a silly question. And what's that all about? And I was concerned about the question, not because I'm in the camp that worries about super intelligence or that machines one day will eat us. But it, it concerned me because it meant that Vladimir Putin was being briefed, uh, the, the president of Russia, uh, the leader of Russia, and the, the person in charge of its security apparatus 
was being briefed on complex artificial intelligence terms and concepts. And it meant they're in deep on this topic. And we're probably seeing that in, in their interference uh, in U.S. elections and in cyberspace. Um, Superintelligence posits, and this is Nick Brostrom's paperclip uh, optimizer. Uh, the, the concept is the paperclip um, optimizer is trained as an algorithm, as an AI system to make paperclips. But it's so good at making paperclips that it, it and it's, it's excellent. And it's important that the paperclip is a neutral thing. Uh, paperclips are not evil, right? The, the AI system is not trying to uh, take over the world. It's just trying to make paperclips. But it gets so carried away with this and so good at it that it runs out of sources of energy. So it starts uh, using its skill to find new sources of energy. And eventually it makes robots to go capture humans and turn humans that are made in part in, uh, out of carbon into sources of energy. And that's the eating the people part. And does Nick Bostrom think this is going to happen? No. But he's using it as an example of, uh, of how some people perceive that at some point artificial intelligence could become an existential threat. Uh, that's not me. Uh, I, I identify three camps. One camp is the stay calm and carry on camp, which is where we are today. Um, and let's start figuring out how to apply law and ethics to this or the law we have to this and do so wisely. Uh, the next camp is sort of the Stephen Hawking camp, which is well, it could be uh, this could all work out well, or it could head head in the wrong direction. Uh, that's the friendly or unfriendly camp, um, and then there's the uh, existential threat camp, uh, which says it's inevitably going to end up in 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 a bad place. Um, but I, I I hope that's not what you take away from this podcast. But I think it needs to be addressed because if your only knowledge of AI comes from movies and robotic movies. Uh, that's maybe that may be your start point, rather than that algorithm that's going to help help us decide uh, when to provide maintenance to a machine or maintenance to a vehicle or an aircraft, or that algorithm that runs through video feed uh, to pick out those portions of the boring video feed that might warrant human attention and focus. Uh, sorry, uh, Kyle, that's probably more than you were looking for. No, I think I think that's perfect. Thank you for being uh, forthcoming. Um, so I guess the next big question then is why do we need a legal framework for artificial intelligence? Um, right. Great. Thank you. Okay. So so that's a good segue. Part two of the book then is the law part, right? Um, and the uh, the first chapter in part two is called toward a legal framework, and. Um, we, we are a constitutional democracy, and um, one of the, uh, the advantages we have, or one of the things that will distinguish uh, how we, um, we uh, um, the United States, uh, approach artificial intelligence and its potential, as well as its risks, uh, potentially um, we will do so uh, with law and ethics, right? And this will distinguish us from authoritarian uses of artificial intelligence. And, and how will we do that? We'll do that by applying law, ethics, and democratic values to how we use artificial intelligence uh, in, in, 
in how it invades our privacy or doesn't invade our privacy, in how we permit or don't permit the government to use it, um, and that sort of thing. So if China, uh, and China has uh, stated at the uh, highest levels that it will, it intends to spend $150 billion by 2030 to become the world's leader in artificial intelligence. And because we're talking about a constellation of technologies, that doesn't necessarily mean they'll be a leader in a particular area or they'll have more of this or more of that. It's, it's, it's a ballpark. Um, but if, if China is striving to be the world's leader in artificial intelligence, um, one of our advantages and one of the things that might distinguish us is that our use of artificial intelligence uh, will be founded on law and will be founded on ethics. And one of the things that sometimes happens, if you do it wisely and well, is that law and ethics not only makes us uh, live up to our constitutional values, but by applying law and ethics in a wise way, you end up with a more accurate, more effective, uh, more useful tool. Uh, so as an added bonus, you actually end up with facial recognition technology uh, that works. Uh, it works better because you have focused on eliminating potential risks of bias in how the facial recognition technology applies or aware of that bias, you use it more wisely so you get a more accurate result or a more effective result. Um, that's a good thing. It's a good thing if you believe in national security and it's a good thing if you believe in law and ethics. So the, the second part of the book uh, starts with the proposition that um, lawyers will do and governments will do uh, a, a number of things uh, where there is no law specifically on point. Um, and one can, uh, if the leading law in this area is the Constitution, and the leading law in the area of national security is the National Security Act of 1947, as amended, for example, uh, we can stipulate up front for, um, that, that artificial intelligence is probably not what the founders who wrote the Constitution or the drafters of the National Security Act of 1947 had in mind. Uh, perhaps those who have amended it later we're thinking about artificial intelligence, but not really. Um, so uh, we have law, but it wasn't specifically designed with artificial intelligence in mind and the implications and applications that uh, come to the, to the fore. Um, so what happens when you have law that is not specifically on point? One, it might fit very well and it might be just fine, right? Because the law may embed principles that apply equally to this constellation of technologies. Um, but here are a couple of things that might happen. Uh, when the law is not specific and specifically on point, we apply the law we have. And the law we have is one, the constitution and two, the existing national security law framework. So I go through those both. I go through the constitutional law and I go through the existing national security law framework and see how it might apply to these new tools and potential tools. Um, the second thing that happens when we don't have law that's on point is we, it magnifies the importance and virtue uh, of, the, of the Constitution. Because if you have no statutory law, or there's no law per se that applies, one thing that always applies is the Constitution, um, or should, right? And so what I do uh, is I, I explain to the reader 
and hopefully I do so in, in uh, plain English uh, and in clear English, what it is about the Constitution that you, the generalist, you, the general reader, you, the person who is a lifelong learner, you, the person who is a national security specialist, but not a technology specialist, what is it you need to know about the Constitution to work effectively and wisely wield the power of AI? Uh, and here I spend time on the First Amendment, uh, the Fourth Amendment, and the Fifth Amendment, among others. Um, and I, I offer up uh, the different ways that the, uh, the, these key provisions of the Constitution uh, might influence um, how both industry, but uh, specifically the government, uh, might uh, be um, empowered, but also delimited in its use of artificial intelligence tools. So what else happens when the law is not specifically on point? You apply the law you have, it heightens the importance of the Constitution as a legal guide. Um, it elevates the importance of litigation, uh, because what happens when the law is not clear is there are disputes over the law. And in our system, uh, oftentimes where disputes over the law are resolved is in litigation. And for example, an example of that is when in 2015, in the context of the San Bernardino terrorist shooters, uh, the FBI and Apple uh, went at it in litigation over whether uh, the FBI could compel Apple to open up the iPhone of the shooters, of one of the shooters. And this ended up in court and there was a back and forth. And um, one thing, uh, in my view, you ought to know is litigation is a terrible way to make national policy, including national security policy, because it magnifies and elevates the interests of the specific parties and not necessarily the, the interest of the population in general, in general, right? So the FBI is in, has a very honorable and specific desire to stop terrorism, and Apple has a very specific and honorable desire to maintain the privacy of its phones because that's an essential feature of its business model. Um, but neither side is asking the question, what is in the best interest of the American public in the long term? Um, and they're both pushing for a particular result. What is more, uh, you can't have very well have national policy if you end up with a court decision in California going one way and a court decision in New York going another way, which is exactly what happened uh, in the Apple FBI uh, disputes. Makes it very hard to have a national framework. Um, so I would like to uh, encourage with this book the Congress, uh, the executive branch, um, to look at these issues, some of these very important issues, and resolve them through legislation or executive directive and so on, or, or just uh, common policy, um, rather than deferring to litigation in courts. Um, and I go through that in the book. Uh, the fourth thing that happens when the law is not clear um, is that lawyers uh, look for analogies to apply, just like in case law and in, in in, in the common law and in court cases, we look, we look for another case that's sort of like ours that we can draw lessons from and apply to our case and then persuade a judge that that's the case that's most like my situation and therefore you decide it, you should decide it in my favor. Um, and in the law, in national security law, when we don't have a specific statute to apply 
or a specific principle to apply. You might look uh, to other categories of law and say, well, are there things we can learn from that that we might apply uh, to our situation as a model, um, as a template, or maybe even the law applies itself. Uh, so the, the book uh, goes through a couple of areas that might be important analogies or metaphors uh, to apply to um, artificial system, artificial intelligence systems as they come forward now. Um, one is uh, the area of arms control and arms regulation and what we can learn from that, not necessarily to repeat uh, and not necessarily because AI is an arm. Uh, it's not. It's a, it's a range of capabilities. But we might learn things such as, well, what about verification? How do you verific- verify something that is predicated on software? Uh, how do you verify a bunch of zeros and ones and a bunch of zeros and ones that can be changed at the last minute? Well, that sounds a bit like trying to verify chemical weapons convention or the biological agents weapons convention. Um, and we can learn certain lessons from the chemical weapons convention about control and verification of control. And some of the lessons are that it's hard to do, uh, but there are also some positive lessons. There are also some lessons we can derive from nuclear command and control that we might apply uh, to the area of artificial intelligence, especially in the national security field. So I go through a bunch of those lessons, um, which which I hope uh, might spark the interest of a larger audience to consider what we should adapt and adopt uh, to the artificial intelligence area, the law of war, uh, the law of armed conflict is also a very fertile area for extrapolating some principles. And here are some of the principles that one might extrapolate that are discussed at length in the book. Uh, one is this whole notion uh, under Article Thirty Six um, of uh, of the additional protocols. Uh, there's a requirement uh, to test new weapons or new means and methods of warfare. Uh, for um, to make sure that those weapons or new means and methods of warfare are, are consistent with the law of armed conflict, which is a real thing. Um, and uh, most states accept that that is a legally binding requirement as a matter of customary international law and in some cases treaty law. And one might consider then, well, okay, AI, an AI application is not necessarily a weapon. Uh, and indeed, we're not talking about weapons for the most part, or and sometimes at all. But why not adopt a similar principle that we should test new applications of AI in a certain manner before we allow their use? That's an example of law by analogy. Another law by analogy might be uh, the, the concept of uh, command responsibility. That is a military concept. Uh, that is derived from the law of armed conflict. And it states that the commander, in in essence, it states that the commander is responsible uh, for everything uh, he orders, but also everything he ought to know was going on and then failed to stop. Uh, It it does not relieve the commander of responsibility uh, just because he looked the other way or did not know something was going on. In other words, he has to put in processes and command functions that allows him to actually command. Um, you could adopt similar principles because uh, one of the things that is bugging people and one of the centaur's dilemmas is who's accountable, right? If the software engineer writes the code, if somebody else makes the machine, if somebody else decides which data it, the machine is trained on, and then somebody else decides when to use the machine and against 
what uh, what in what context, who's ultimately accountable for what happens? Well, with command responsibility or a concept like that, you can say, um, we're not going to worry about all those things. We're going to say the person who has the responsibility is the ultimate user, or the person who has responsibility is the commander, the person who uh, has put the thing into play. Um, anyway, uh, right now, uh, there would be a debate about that, who is ultimately responsible. Um, the last chapter, the, the, the second to last chapter, I already described the last chapter, which was about the centaur's choice. The second to last chapter uh, is um, about ethics and how ethics can be useful in regulating AI, uh, but also its limitations. Uh, there are limitations to ethics, especially when the ethics is a principle uh, that says we should have transparent AI or we should have equitable AI. Uh, or we should have AI that's not biased. Um, well, that's very important. I think we can agree on those things. Uh, but as is so often the case, the proof's in the pudding and in the actual application. And so I'm, I'm pleased that we have these different ethical principles, but I really want to see how they apply in a specific setting and whether um, they, the, the principle is in fact honor, honored in its actual application. And this chapter also looks at things like how academ ac academia should look at, um, can do more in the area of artificial intelligence uh, to protect data, uh, to make sure that uh, it is um, uh, tested and used wisely um, and that sort of thing. And I have very, some very specific examples. And then there's a section which I'm sure will make me very popular um, at at the big five uh, social media companies uh, about corporate social responsibility, uh, which I very cleverly referred to as corporate security responsibility. And uh, this gets into the whole notion of what duty uh, do the uh, principal AI companies or any AI companies, what duty do they owe to the greater good, to the national security of the United States and um, some of the key questions here, of course, uh, you already know, uh, but some of the key questions are, for example, to what extent uh, should you have AI business or share AI know-how and technology uh, with potential adversaries like China? Um, and or uh, to what extent should they be participating in U.S. markets and have access to U.S. data sets and U.S. know-how and so on. My pitch is not necessarily to tell you that it's a good thing or a bad thing or we should allow more of it or less of it. I want the United States government to make purposeful decisions. What usually leads to lousy policy and lousy results are default, default decisions where nobody knows what they're doing or nobody steps up to the plate and makes a decision. Um, my book is intended to help policymakers with the advice of their lawyers and with the advice of their technologists, um, stand up to the plate and make a purposeful choice. Should we or should we not allow this company uh, to work with China in this area? Should we or should we not allow Google to do this to uh, apply this system of AI in this context, scraping this data from this platform? Um, and uh, because uh, letting, letting it all happen 
in a non-purposeful way is not going to lead to a preferred outcome. It's going to lead to an outcome, uh, but not necessarily a preferred outcome. Right. And you. what, <laughs> uh, thank you. And, uh, what, what, what do you think would be some of that purposeful, uh, legislation? What do you think that could look like? Um, well, uh, I tried, <laughs> I'm laughing cause I know something that I'm not sharing. I tried to include, um, a, a 20 page addendum with the book which was 20 pages of recommendations. And in my publisher, uh, very good publisher, Brookings, which is uh, known as, is one of the leading, if not the leading think tank in the country, it's known for its policy books. So uh, the, um, in, 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 and rightfully so. And um, so they, they uh, I'm, I'm pleased to report that, that uh, Brookings uh, understood that it was this might be the time and the place for a book about AI and law, uh, which is is not their uh, what what they generally do, but they loved the idea of the intersection of law and policy. Uh, they loved less the idea of twenty thousand footnotes and twenty <laughs> pages of recommendations and all the things that usually are manifest in legal writing. Um, so uh, part of the, uh, the, the compromise or the bargain or the, the, the game or the goal of writing a book for a policy audience on a policy platform such as Brookings was to make sure it was in plain English um, and make sure there wasn't a footnote uh, for every word, um, which is often what legal writing looks like. And by the way, does not make it particularly easy to read or interesting. Um, so, uh, each chapter ends up, uh, at the end of each chapter, I have some key takeaways. Uh, so th this is sort of the cliff notes or the, if you remember nothing else about what I've just written in this chapter, remember these five things or remember these six things. And they operate essentially as a, as a form of recommendations, but they're not the 20 pages of, of specific recommendations, but here, here are a few of them. Here are a few of them. Um, one of my things is that good, uh, good process leads to better results. Bad process, of course, leads to badder results. Um, and one of the things that needs to happen in order to have good policy and good law is you have to have a process that's intended to actually uh, create it and which has the right people at the table. And this can be sort of dry and boring stuff. Um, but right now, uh, like I say, Google is doing what Google will do, uh, and DOD is doing what it will do. Um, and what I'm looking for is a coherent process within the government, as well as between the government and industry and between the government and academia, uh, to start addressing these broad questions about how should we address uh, questions like data management, data ownership, whose data, who's allowed to scrape it, who's allowed to sell it, is the government allowed to buy it? Um, these are questions that um, are right now it's the Wild West because there really is no regulation in this area, uh, very little. Um, and again, what I want is purposeful choice before, uh, before we find out that it doesn't matter anymore because all the data is already in China or all the data is already in, 
in government computers or all the data is already in Google computers. Um, and, and it's too late to, to start influencing outcomes about privacy or optimal uses or best training models and so on. Um, so not surprisingly, um, I uh, have some suggestions about how the government might organize itself for this. And I'm pleased to report, uh, not as a partisan political observer or actor, uh, but simply to report as an observer of national policy formulation, uh, that I noted that the, um, uh, the uh, incoming uh, Biden administration has created a directorate uh, at the National Security Council uh, called um, Technology and Na- National Security and put a very able person uh, in charge of that directorate who no doubt now is going to be uh, responsible for coordinating the efforts of the United States government in a uniform way, uh, an informed and purposeful way involving uh, national security and AI, among other things. So, that, so that's a very important start point. And I can't take credit for it, but it was certainly one of the things I recommended. Um, and now there needs to be an interagency process that parallels that. And so that's, that's one sort of recommendation kit. How do you organize the government and get the government to do the things that it ought to be doing, but is hard to do? Um, I heard someone describe uh, government work as the ultimate team sport because it only works if everybody's playing and participating and playing on the same team at the same time. Um, uh, sorry, I lost my chain of thought here for a moment. Um, the, uh, the, the, when, we, when we talk about ethics uh, in AI, and a lot of people talk about ethics in AI, we, I, I, I think there are really three care categories of, of principal ethical concern. Uh, one are the decisional issues that arise with the centaur's dilemma which is what are you going to um, allow machines to do? What are you going to allow machines to do with human decision? And what are you going to allow humans to do with machine augmentation? And I think we need to start going through the specific applications um, and look at um, whether we want legal regulation of the specific applications so that we can make it more concrete exactly when we're going to allow humans to do what and when we're going to allow machines to do what. Um, and, and that's an important area. The next area of ethical concern is in the area of bias. And bias comes up in different ways with artificial intelligence. There's, there's of course, always the bias that is expressed, right? The human who expressly or perhaps unwittingly embeds bias, uh, their own bias, their own human bias into how an al- algorithm operates. But there's also uh, different types of bias that can arise, such as um, unintentional bias that comes from faulty data or old data or, or uh, polluted data, uh, data that uh, has either be, been intentionally uh, adulterated or perhaps unintentionally so. Um, if you train an algorithm on old data, uh, here's an example that I find easy easy to use. And, and since it's one I understand, uh, it means it's it's an extremely simple one. Uh, but if you train an algorithm to try and predict for you who will be successful in this job, who will be a successful State Department employee, for example, uh, you might look to prior successful State Department employees, right? Um, who have been some of our great diplomats? 
And so you might look at what was in their CVs and you might embed those in an algorithm uh, to search uh, current incoming applicants for State Department positions. Um, nobody's intending to do anything biased here. Uh, they want to find the best foreign service officers. But the problem is if you train the algorithm uh, to model the most successful candidates, for example, who, were the, who, who became um, uh, the great diplomats of their day, what you're going to do is, without realizing it, you might embed into the algorithm a bias toward uh, uh, white men, uh, not because you're trying to favor white men, but because the successful diplomats of the past 50 years um, might well have been white men because that's who was recruited into the Foreign Service in 1940 and 1950 and 1960. And so you're embedding in the new search algorithm whatever bias, societal bias, was embedded in the culture at the time, um, at a time when uh, diverse and minority and, and uh, female candidates might not have had the same opportunities to be considered for positions. So that's an example where you might have uh, data bias or design bias without even intending it. Um, and then uh, uh, the third area where uh, that we need to make perf pur purposeful choices with law and ethics is data, uh, data management. Who can collect it? Who can retain it? Who can sell it? Um, uh, how long can you retain it for? What uses can you make, make uh, use it for? And, and so on. And, and that's an area that's crying uh, for a national uh, policy understanding because there, there are very significant equities uh, cutting in each and every direction. Um, and uh, so, so that, those are some of the areas where law and ethics should come into play. You would be surprised, um, Kyle, that, that some of our success or failure in this field is going to depend on some good old-fashioned uh, perhaps one might say boring law, um, which are things like how we contract um, and how we hire people. Uh, one of the things that the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence has pointed out is that one of our great advantages, one of the advantages of America in, in the technology area is that we are still the place of choice for people who want to be innovators and people who want to be educated in, in the engineering fields and the AI fields. And um, but but that won't be the case if uh, we don't have a system that allows students to come to the United States and participate in, in these models. And that, and that won't be a, the case if it's so hard to contract with the government because the federal acquisition regulations are so complex and convoluted uh, that not only can you that can is it difficult to do things like uh, procure vaccine and, and the mechanisms to provide for a vaccine in a timely way. But it turns out it's very hard. Nobody wants to do business with the government because it's so complicated or so timely or it takes too long. Um, right. If you're Google or, or if you're um, uh, uh, Amazon and, and your business model is not predicated on U.S. government business, but it's predicated on uh other aspects of business, um, you might say, why would I bother with the government? Because it's so tricky to deal with them. So the government has to get its own house in order by streamlining and fixing the contracting processes. And in addition, fixing how it approaches 
things like personnel. Uh, where are the, be the best AI engineers going? Well, we hope they're going into public service, or at least for part of their time. But it's tough to compete when uh, public service cannot offer, uh, it certainly cannot compete in the salary area, which we always understood, but it may, may not be able to compete even in the flexibility uh, area. So um, I want to streamline how we go about hiring personnel, not only so I can bring them on more quickly, um, and also so I might be able to pay them just a little bit more uh, and make government a more attractive option, not to take all the actors away from industry or academia, but to make it so that there can be a three-way discussion between those three critical components um, and, and the government is not shorthanded. Um, so that's, that's a, not a very good, that's not my 20-page list of recommendations for sure, uh, but that is a, um, an hors d'oeuvre, uh, a sip of, of what, what you will find in the book uh, and what you'll find in, um, elsewhere uh, that, uh, about what, what we might do. Uh, one more example, um, seven months ago, most of our listeners would probably not have ever heard of the Defense Production Act. Um, it, it is now a central and essential, but not the sole, legal authority that will help us mobilize our nation uh, to provide the uh, medical supplies, the vaccine, and the mechanisms to distribute the vaccine uh, more quickly. It's an essential tool um, in the executive branch's quiver uh, to mobilize the nation to meet the, in, the national security industrial needs, including those in the area of public health. But it's also uh, an essential national security tool in the area of critical technologies. And one of those critical technologies is artificial intelligence. And so the book uh, identifies um, some of the ways you could uh, modernize and update this 1950 era statute uh, to equip it for 21st technology, 21st century technological challenges. Um, the law by chance, uh, not by chance, but by design, it has to be reauthorized every five years. Uh, so there's an opportunity to update this law and update it in a way that will address uh, artificial intelligence in meaningful ways. Um, but we have to take that opportunity. We have to take that opportunity. It's not going to happen on its own. Um, so that's where a good government process should come in. And if I were the uh, senior director in that National Security Council office dealing with technology and national security, I would be taking a hard look at the Defense Production Act and asking, how might we alter, amend, update this very important statute, not only to help in responding to pandemics, uh, but to address the technology challenges uh, coming down the pike. Well, Judge Baker, uh, thank you. Um, we've taken up a lot of your time for today. So I want to ask you finally, where are you off to next? What are you working on now? <laughs> That's wonderful. Uh, wouldn't, wouldn't I like to know? Um, <laughs> the, uh, well, uh, <laughs> um, I, I've uh, so so I um, I'm I'm working with the uh, uh, CSET, which is the Center for Security and Emerging Technologies at uh, at, at Georgetown University, um, 
and I'm one might say I'm uh, sort of a legal component of their policy uh, work. Um, so I'm going to continue with that, and I think uh, I've I'm I'm looking at other emerging technologies, um, all of which are enabled in some way or likely to be enabled in some way by what happens in the AI area and those those that's quantum computing and synthetic biology uh, in particular. Um, I also think as a national security uh, law specialist, uh, I have a duty um, to do everything I can and to help anybody who wishes uh, for me to try and help them address the COVID pandemic. So I've spent, um, whether I've done it effectively or not is, is a different question, but I've spent much of my time uh, since the outbreak of the pandemic, and I uh, dare say I might uh, spend my time going forward as well. I hope not. I hope that this will end at some point. Uh, it would certainly will, but the question is when. Um, but I spend uh, as much as my as my time as as seems uh, as I can, uh, trying to apply my knowledge of national security law uh, to better address the COVID pandemic. So I started looking at defense, the, the Defense Production Act because of my interest in artificial intelligence. Um, but that knowledge, uh, to the extent it exists, uh, I've sought to transfer uh, not just to, uh, you know, to the COVID uh, response to the COVID pandemic. Um, I think the question that um, the, the, the uh, what's next, so, so COVID is now, uh, hopefully it's not next, but just now, and we get past that, um, we'll always have to prepare ourselves uh, we, we were on borrowed time. Pandemics are part of uh, the cycle of life and there will be more pandemics and, and they don't come on a regular schedule or they don't come as planned. They might come immediately after this one or they might not come for another 20 or 30 years, but I would not count on it. So uh, the national security community uh, needs to organize itself and adopt the lessons from our experience with COVID-19 so that we get it right uh, for the next pandemic, and we don't have the catch-up lag that we've had this time. Um, what else is next? Uh, I, I, I would like, to, I, I think we're in a, a stage of uh, great power rivalry, which I don't want to turn into a discussion of Westphalia and so on, but I think um, it's important that we educate uh, students and practitioners and policymakers um, uh, in the tools of great power rivalry, uh, which I'm obviously thinking about China, uh, thinking about China, uh, Russia to a certain extent, um, and regional regional rivals, perhaps, uh, and, and make sure that um, the traditional tools of national security are still apt and relevant to 21st century uh, challenges. And I think that's very important. Uh, so we can't neglect uh, some of the traditional tools, uh, how we use the military, how we use intelligence. Um, are those, is that law and policy where it should be uh, for the century ahead? Uh, so I think that's, that's an area with, that uh, I, I am working on and hope to continue to work on. Thank you for the well, question and thank you for getting me to think about that. Well, thank you very much for your time and thank you for being here today.
Uh, you're quite welcome, Kyle. Um, I would say any time, but then that means I have to go answer another Jason Matheny's questions and write a book. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion of Judge James E. Baker's new book entitled The Centaur's Dilemma, National Security Law for the Coming AI Revolution, recently published by the Bookings Institute Press. Bye for now.